So this is another poem from one of the early Buddhist nuns. She said, she says, I had no peace of mind, no control over my mind. Those were the two lines that caught my attention. I had no peace of mind, no control over my mind. I went to a nun I thought I could trust. She taught me the Dharma, the elements of body and mind, the nature of perception, and earth, water, fire, and wind. I heard what she said and sat cross-legged seven days, full of joy. When on the eighth I stretched my feet out, the great dark was torn apart. I'm always interested in these stories of sitting seven full days and then coming to full awakening. It sounds really good. (laughs) And the piece that, as I said, really did pull me in because I was thinking about talking about um, attention to the mind tonight was that here's somebody who's a nun at the time of the Buddha who's effectively saying what... I hear students say all the time, and certainly what I say, which is, oh, the mind, you know, and some sense that it's very difficult to control it. And um, so, so how is it that we work with it? And as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, it's a time right now, I think, it's an election year, there's a lot going on in the economy, there's a war. There is so there are countless emails coming through that say think this way, think that way. If you hang out on YouTube or on blogs or whatever, um, it's pretty amazing and the mind gets pretty full, you know, even as I said, just listening to NPR. I came to the conclusion I'd better put some CDs of classical music in my car so that I have some respite periodically. So it says in the Dhammapada that the mind is the forerunner of all things. That And mind, it's really important to remember when we talk about mind in Buddhist terms that we're actually talking about heart slash mind. The word citta actually means both the heart and the mind. And in early times, it was actually thought to reside more in the torso than in the head. So it really includes the body, and it certainly includes the heart. And the notion is that every experience, every action has an element of mind in it. And so it is... It's the forerunner of all things. It's really helpful to pay attention to it. And it's also understood that the clouded mind or the ignorant mind is the first step of the cycle of birth and death and suffering, sometimes called the chain of dependent origination. But it's that place where we go around and around and around, and every person in this room knows that place. It sounds like, sometimes it sounds like such an esoteric teaching, and um, that always a little bit amazes me when I think about it, because it's something that we all know, because everyone here has gotten caught in some kind of repetitive behavior, right? 
the same relationship over and over again with different people, the same job, the same whatever, where we keep somehow repeating some not-so-helpful pattern of behavior. And um, so that's the understanding behind that is that that's the place where the mind is the forerunner of all things. can also be the forerunner when it's clear and wise and seeing um, what is true. And um, so it's helpful to reflect every now and then about what are the fundamental stories that you see your life through. You know, what are the, what are, sometimes there's stories of abandonment, sometimes there's stories of abuse, sometimes there's stories of a particular kind of desire or addiction, sometimes there are stories about this is the way the world is or this is who I am, it can be a story of low self-esteem or it can be a story of inflated self-esteem, but there's some underlying story, often it goes way, way back developmentally to early times, and we see the world through that story, more often than not. Some years ago, I was sitting a three-month retreat, and Joseph Goldstein was talking one evening, and he, he said something, which I've carried around, and I try to remember to repeat as often as I can. He said, notice how we build houses of stories and then we inhabit them. Notice how we build houses of stories, and then we inhabit them. If you take nothing else out of tonight's talk, I hope you take that, because it's been such a useful thing to just see how we do that. And probably some of you, if you didn't build a house, you built at least a little shack this evening, (laughs) sitting on your cushion and... You know, sometimes we have favorite houses that we build, and I know I've sat at more than one retreat and created an entire story about how either my husband or my daughters are sick or dead or injured. And, you know, and then I'll hear the phone ring, you know, in the distance, and I'll know, you know, that's the call that's telling me get up off your cushion, go to the emergency room, whatever. It's just a phone call. It's just a phone, telephone ring, right? But but I'm hearing it through the lens of that story. So the, the monks have a great instruction. They say, watch your mind, kind of the way that your mother used to say, watch your mouth. And... So watch your mind, you know, give your attention to the mind. And to attend to the mind as we experience it. What is this mind that we experience? And what's really interesting is that often as we start practice, and this might be true for some of you, that that it's a new idea that we can actually be mindful of the mind. You know, that we can, we can pay attention to the mood, to the emotions, to the thoughts. And it's a, it's a, a shift in emphasis because often we 
Um, in the beginning, just, I mean, we identify with the mind, that's me. And if I have a thought, it must be true. And I believe it. It's not, you know, it's not just a thought going through, it's, it's how it is. And, and so it really, the, the, the attention to the mind is the third of the foundations of mindfulness. So it's right there in the most basic teaching of the Buddha. Give your attention to the mind. And in the, the poem that the nun wrote, that's some of the instruction that she got from her teacher was to give her attention to the mind and to begin to notice it. You can notice thoughts. It's a great place to start, actually. Is you know we, we tend to think you're sitting there and the mind starts thinking and you think oh dear bad I'm a, not a good meditator come back to the breath come back to the body, but you could begin to just notice thoughts, forget about it, coming back just make the thoughts your object of your practice. You can count thoughts if you really want to make it interesting. See how many thoughts you think in 45 minutes of meditation. That's probably a little scary, actually. <laughs> Maybe how many thoughts do you think in the last 10 minutes of your meditation? And, of course, sometimes what happens is when you're counting thoughts, the mind gets quite quiet. It's like the cat at the mouse hole. You know, The mouse knows the cat's there, so the mouse doesn't come out. Sometimes the mind continues to crank out thoughts. But then you begin to see, oh, look, as you're really paying attention to thoughts, not all thoughts come out fully formed. You know, they're not, they don't emerge in complete sentences. They emerge in little images and phrases and half-thoughts, and then they proliferate. the understanding. They sort of get very elaborate, very, very fast. And because the mind is so important in terms of how we act in the world, it's very important to see it clearly. And again, that's something actually that's pretty commonsensical. You know that. You know those places where if you're not paying attention to the mind-heart and then something is going on that you're not really mm, giving enough energy to, and then... You know, you're in some interaction and the anger comes out sideways or the desire comes out sideways and all of a sudden you're saying or doing something that you didn't really know that you were going to say or do. So, in the instructions on attention to the mind, the, the Buddha gives us several instructions. He, and he creates kind of two levels. And one is what he calls the ordinary mind. So the, the um, and then the other is the, the more sort of the higher mind, you could call it, or the more exalted, one of the words they use is the exalted mind or the surpassed mind. So the mind that becomes quite refined when you do meditation practice, gets quite concentrated and, some, and moves towards freedom. So we're really invited to observe both, to notice um, when the mind is in a state of greed or hatred or delusion, when it's contracted or distracted, and to know when you're actually more deeply concentrated. It doesn't say, interestingly enough, go off in a wave of bliss and get identified with that really refined mind. It just says, notice it when it's there. It's quite interesting, actually, that the Buddha is quite clear about that. 
So the important piece, and one, and I think the most useful piece for everyday life practice is the first set of instructions. So he's really saying when the mind is filled with greed and desire and attachment, know that that is the case. And if the mind is filled with anger and aversion and fear, know that that is the case. And here's the tricky one. When the mind is deluded, somehow it helps to figure out that you're deluded, that you're not seeing so clearly. And these are really important places. These three things are called sometimes the kalesas, that's the Pali word, that, that's the, they're considered to be the obstructions. So sometimes I think of them as being kinds of really thick lenses that, that block our view. Sometimes they're called the root of all suffering um, of, or of all that isn't wholesome. And when we begin to work with them, it actually leads to a great deal more sensitivity in terms of our interaction with others and with the world. So greed, you know, that place, we live in a culture, I mean, we're seeing it, right, this week, sort of the what happens when greed really takes over. But, you know, on a much smaller scale, we all know this place where the mind leans out Oh, it's always, my sense of it is it always has this kind of feel to it. And it wants chocolate, sex, food of all sorts, money, you know, whatever it was you saw in the L.L. Beans catalog this afternoon, or whatever. And, And it just gets consumed with that kind of wanting. Sometimes it's not so fiery. One of the images for it is fire. Sometimes it's more subtle. And sometimes, if you're really paying attention, you can begin to see the mind sort of lean out before you even know what it's leaning towards. Quite interesting. And aversion and hatred is that place where, you know, we don't like what we see, we don't want it, we're angry, sometimes we're afraid, so it's very much a contracting kind of energy and and blocking off and pulling in. And then the delusion is that place where we get kind of lost. And the mind that has no greed, no hatred, no delusion at all whatsoever is considered to be the mind of a fully enlightened being, an arhat. So just in case you want to know what the identifying marks are, that's one of the identifications. And actually... One of the things that's kind of fun to play with in Buddhist thinking, um, each person tends to be one, predominantly one of these things. I, for example, I'm an aversive person. So, and then some people are more agreed type, and some people are more the deluded type. So here's the test: if you walk into a room like you walk in here, and if you're agreed type, you look around and you go. Look at that beautiful paint job. Ah, the color is wonderful. I want it. I'm going to find out who did it, and I'm going to go home and do it too. Or maybe you like the guanyin or the orchid or the cushions or whatever, but it immediately sees what you like in the room, and it wants it. If you walk in and you go, how could they? 
have painted it that color or left those industrial windows or, you know, weren't they thinking about air conditioning or heat or whatever and has all, all that place of judgment and criticism. If that's what comes up first, you're probably an aversive type. And if you walk in and then later someone says to you, and how was the Vipassana Santa Cruz Meditation Center? You say, well, I actually um, didn't quite notice. You're probably deluded because you're not seeing. So if you want a little thumbnail, you can. All of these things are deeply conditioned. They're very, very deeply conditioned from... You, many lifetimes if you hold that model but certainly way way back in this lifetime and um, they come up you know even even when you begin to work with the one that's most difficult for you it still comes up you know even though I know that I'm an aversive person sometimes it comes up and sometimes it still runs the show even when I don't like that so I learned this, um, actually, um, around um, dealing with some of my reactivity to the fact that I have this husband who likes to go to Burning Man. And Burning Man is not my thing, exactly. Um, But it's really his thing, and he really loves it, and it's been very heart-opening for him. And often, as he starts, you know, collecting his gear and making his plans, and my mind starts getting filled with judgment and criticism, and it's very uncomfortable, and I don't like it. And I can see it. And I went to see my friend Ajahn Amro once, and I said, you know, I just, I don't know what to do about this. It's this awful, judgmental, critical mind state that comes up. And he said, oh, he said, it's just a conditioned mind state. (sighs) Well, that was such a wonderful teaching. Because it was that teaching that says, here comes this mind state, here comes this wave of aversion, and I didn't have to buy into it. It's just a conditioned mind state. So it was a teaching that really helped me begin to even more deeply look at, this is something we can observe and we can make decisions about. Is this a useful thought or not? Is this a thought that should even be believed or not? Is this an emotion that I want to pay attention to? Or is this one that I want to notice that it's there and be really, really careful not to act out of it, not to speak out of it, not to do anything. Just sit with it until it subsides or even do some things to calm it down if if that seems wise and useful. For a long, long time, I didn't know I I was an aversive person. And we were talking about this last week up at Spirit Rock with a group of fairly senior students. And it was decided that it's sort of an in thing to be a greed type. That's what everybody wants to be, is to be a greed type. Nobody wants to be aversive, and nobody wants to be deluded. And of course, I thought I was a greed type. And then one day, I finally kind of came to in the middle of a solitary retreat when something happened that really upset me and I went, oh my goodness, I am really an aversive type. But you know it's been so helpful because then when it comes up in the mind, it's like, oh, okay, is this, this, is, this is that aversion thing. Do I pay attention to it or don't I? Um, 
So the observed mind isn't the final authority. The observed mind is a mind that that there is awareness that can observe and that creates space for more skillful decisions to be made. So really meeting this mind, you know, as you're sitting, you know, watch your mind. As you're going to work in the morning, watch your mind. As you encounter your best beloved with a possibly difficult conversation, watch your mind, you know. Be kind of curious about what's in there and notice so that then you can make these wiser decisions. So what doesn't work is to ignore it. That we know. Lots of psychotherapists have made a lot of money working with people who aren't looking at their minds and who don't know what's in there, and then they act very unconsciously and very unskillfully. And a lot of the work of psychotherapy, actually, is, I think, beginning to give your attention to the mind and to try to see it in a clear way, you know? So awareness of the mind, it's like holding up a mirror to your mind. What's there right now? One of the things that I came across in thinking about this, there's a fellow by the name of Paul Ekman who has been to a number of the Mind and Life conferences with the Dalai Lama. He's a psychologist. He's written some books. He's about, another a new one is about to come out of his conversations with the Dalai Lama. And he's done a lot of work on emotional responses, and particularly in facial patterns. And one of his comments in an interview I heard recently was that that our emotional responses come out of a really primitive layer in the psyche. It goes way, way, way back. And they were really useful for early people because if the tiger was coming after you or you know, the wolf or whatever, you needed that kind of reactive mind to take care of you. And it was very helpful. And he said, it's not so helpful anymore. He said, it's like constantly being, your mind constantly being in a state as though you were in a car that was about to crash. That reactive, where you have to make a decision and act on it and poof. And we all know that that's not skillful in our everyday lives. So it's it's very useful to begin to take the stance of can I observe this and see what's there and then make a clear decision. That all can happen still fairly quickly, but it leads to a response instead of to a reaction. So the other thing that I think is particularly important in this um, early part of attending to the mind is noticing when the mind is contracted and when it's distracted. And both of those are difficult. They're kind of opposite ends of a spectrum, right? So sometimes the mind, one of the words that someone mentioned uh, when I was talking about this was shrunken. And so we all know how that feels. When the mind gets really tight and the heart gets really small and pulled in and contracted and hard and it's like nothing can move and that's not 
such a skillful place and it's helpful to be able to see it when it's there. And the other side is to see the mind when it's distracted and it's constantly moving around, going here, going there, and not settling in any place. I actually realized I wanted to back I want to back up a little. I didn't say too much about the deluded mind. So let's go back to that for just a second. The place that's important about delusion, I think, is the place where we need to listen to our friends and particularly our Dharma friends because they're likely to be the ones who are going to start pointing out to us that maybe we're deluded. I think it's a really hard one to see for yourself. Obviously, if you're deluded, how do you see that you're deluded? But if you begin to understand that you have some tendency in that direction, I think then we can begin to work with it. So just just asking the question or even raising the possibility that maybe you're not seeing a particular person or a particular situation clearly is actually quite useful. So I think that's about it. I want to just mention... Um, Again, to just bow to the fact that when we practice, and this can happen some in daily practice, it certainly happens in retreat practice, sometimes the mind gets quite quiet. Sometimes there are all kinds of interesting things that happen. There can be lights, there can be sounds, there can be shifts in consciousness, and it's very, very easy to, for those things to come and we grab on and we go, oh, yes, this probably means that I'm enlightened. That's a thought that goes through mm-hmm. sometimes. Or this is so delicious, I want to stay here for forever. And we hold on. And the instruction of the Buddha is quite clear. He says, when the mind is in a refined state, no that it's in a refined state. When it's not in a refined state, know that it's not in a refined state. He doesn't anywhere say, try to keep it there. Because these are understood, like everything else, to be impermanent, to be states that arise and pass. And so when we give our attention to the mind this way, we begin to see, oh, this mind It's not a solid thing. It's a process like everything else. It's moments of anger and moments of desire and moments of delusion and moments that have no anger or have no desire or have no delusion. Moments of being distracted, moments of being contracted, moments that are refined, a moment of thought. Whatever it is that's happening, one thing after another, this very fluid, flexible process and it never stops any place or becomes one thing that we can say, oh, that's me. So this whole work of mindfulness is is really a way of beginning to see that just like the body is not self, the mind is not self. It's not identifiable or something you can hold on to. So let me read you and end with one more nun's poem. 
Who's the author? The nun? The no, first no, yeah. of the book, or the yeah. the book is Susan Murcutt, and it's called The First Buddhist Women. And it has quite a number of these poems. Some of which are quite formulaic, you know, they're, they're, they're kind, they're clearly following a form, and some of them aren't. She says, I left my daytime resting place on Vulture Peak. I saw an elephant come up on the riverbank after its bath. A man took a hook and said to the elephant, give me your foot. The elephant stretched out its foot. The man mounted. Seeing what was wild before, gone tame under human hands, I went into the forest and concentrated my mind. So, would that we could all have minds that would serve us as well as that elephant. Eh? So. so, I'll stop there and see if we have questions or comments. Please, John. You know, on, uh, in the um, Cornfield's book, The Good Heart, is, is things about what you said about aversion and delusion and stuff like that. The thing is, he had such depth to it that I looked at it and there were parts of every one of them that I definitely Absolutely. am not. Absolutely. One, every one of them that I definitely am not. Uh-huh. So it left me kind of confused. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're all. we all have all of them. There isn't a person here who isn't sometimes filled with desire or aversion or isn't deluded. The, the, the type thing is handy if it works for you. Some people really find it useful to understand that they tend to be more one than the other, but that's the operative thing, is more one than the other. It's not that you aren't any of the other two. So you can play with it and wonder a little about it and be interested and investigative and see if you have some a style, really, is it would be how to, how to hold it. Well, I've got aversion and delusion fighting it out. Uh-huh, yeah, well. Please, Jill. Um, a long time ago when I was on retreat, um, I was really being bothered. I'm, I'm definitely aversive, but I was being very bothered by the amount of noise and distraction that was going on. And in an interview with one of the teachers... She said, which was really helpful, oh, don't you know? Oh, she was. She identified herself as an aversive, too. Aversives really don't like noise. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. So it was something that I could look at and start working with. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And it was very helpful. And, and as you said before, too, it's, it seems it's a little humorous to me, you know, to identify myself as something or to go through that, but it's actually quite helpful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah one of the places I've noticed it is I often, um, when I arrive someplace new, have a wave of aversion about how it's not what I thought it was going to be, or I don't want to do this, or whatever. And I've actually come to recognize it doesn't serve me very well in some situations, a lot of situations. And I've come to sort of Expect it almost. It's like, oh, here's the aversion wave. I don't have to, you know. And so when you expect it, then it isn't quite so compelling. I don't get, quite get so caught by it. Well, it's kind of interesting because even though um, there was 
I'm an aversive type. Uh It also does something for that identification. Right. It 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 awakens the the identification Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. I am. So yeah, just here's a wave. It's it's interesting. Yeah. Anyone else, please? Yeah, I had an experience that really mirrored a lot of what you were talking about, especially in terms of building these stories and forgetting these houses and developing our minds. And um, I think it's a really common experience your legs falling asleep while you're sitting. Uh, I deal with that. And so I gotta say, most of the time, I just kind of move quietly, not to disturb other people. And today I thought, I'm really gonna look at this a little differently, and I'm just gonna try to. Sitting with it. So I started sitting with it, and you know, my legs, of course, started falling asleep. And I immediately went into the story at first without realizing it of like, oh my god, it's horrible and it's painful. And I, like you talked about, your mind kind of is closing in. Uh-huh. It really felt like that. And it's really interesting to give words to that when we were talking about it because uh-huh. it was my experience. And then I stopped and thought, okay, does it really hurt right now? look and see. No, it's kind of tingly, kind of warm. What are the real sensations that I'm really feeling without the story? And it was 90% of my suffering, I think, in that experience was what my mind created uh-huh, uh-huh. based on association uh-huh. with the past and, you know, coming out of that, it's kind of weird and uncomfortable and then associating the whole thing with that, freaking out about it, and instead just being like, what's the actual experience to try to and you feel that mind closing in like that to just step back a little bit mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. see what is really here. And yeah. It always felt like an opening. Yeah. So it was really interesting. That mm-hmm. Great. You didn't have nerve damage and you were <laughs> walking again. I didn't crawl out of your mouth. Yeah. Or sometimes I've had that one and I go, oh, it's so painful. And then I realize, wait a minute, I can't feel. Right. It's not painful. There's just nothing. <laughs> not interesting, but the mind has been, the story is pain. Okay, maybe that's enough. Um, let me make some announcements. Turn that off. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.